There are a few topics in our society where the opinions are stronger and the pain more personal than the areas of sex and marriage. Our society today generally holds out a picture of no restraints. Nothing is off limits. The only thing that really matters is your own personal desire. So we're all encouraged to do what you want, do what makes you happy. It seems fair and reasonable, though, to look around our society and say, what what is the result of that sort of living? Would we say that our society is marked by a greater joy and wholeness and health because of this view? I think it would take no true researcher to discover whatever it is we're doing as a society does not seem to be bringing greater health, greater wholeness, greater happiness even to our society. And so we wonder, does Jesus offer a better way? Is there a way of wholeness and health and peace in this area of great personal desire and of great pain. That's what we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 5. Today will be in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. And you can find it in the Bibles we provided for you on page 810. Page 810. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible so you can see the text in front of you. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We'll be in chapter 5. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, will be in verse 27. And I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we would love as a church to give you a copy. At the back of the room, following the service, there's a table back there, some black Bibles. You don't have to ask permission. Just grab one of those and take it with you uh, this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Matthew. And honestly, this is a text that uh, you, you might look at it and think, oh, it's because it's... Uh, Valentine's Day that Curtis has chosen to tackle this text. No, it's because it's the next text in the book. And it's actually one of the reasons that there's wisdom in what we typically do of preaching through books of the Bible. Because honestly, if we didn't just preach straight through a book of the Bible, I would probably never choose this text. I would spend decades of ministry dodging this text. Because it's difficult. Because it's a painful area. Because it's controversial. And so it's for your good that we as a church go straight through to protect you from my own preferences and honestly my own fear of the opinions of others. So not because of Valentine's Day, simply because it's next. We come to Matthew 5. Listen to the words of Jesus. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
today we see in our text that, that we're to live as light of the world in heart, thoughts, and actions in sexuality and marriage. And today we'll look at this text in two parts. First, we'll see a deeper pursuit in verses 27 to 30. And then second, a higher view in verses 31 and 32. So first, a deeper pursuit in verses 27 to 30. Now, as always, we want to study a text in its broader context. And so we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus Christ has come. He's taken on flesh. He's started his earthly ministry. And he's declaring that the kingdom of God has come near. And he says that because Jesus is the king. And so because the kingdom is near, his kingdom was also breaking in. And now we find ourselves in Matthew 5 through 7 in what we historically refer to often as the Sermon on the Mount. So 5 through 7, the sermon that Jesus is preaching, and he's describing to his followers what life in this world, while being a part of his kingdom, looks like. Now, very importantly, this life that he holds out is the life that we live not in order to be saved. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, if you can keep this, then I will save you. No, it is for those who are saved by his grace, this is how you live in light of that great salvation. We saw a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, that Jesus said of God's people that we are together to be salt and light, meaning that we are to be distinctive, not because we're so good, but because our God is so good, not to draw attention to us, but to draw the eyes of the world to our Savior and King, Jesus. So live differently, Jesus said. And then Jesus, the next week we saw, talked about how all the scriptures, the Old Testament, are about Jesus that he came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then starting last week, we have this section of the sermon where Jesus then takes some teachings and expounds upon them, explains them, and corrects some misunderstandings of them. So we saw last week as he talked about anger and murder. And so in each of these, Jesus gives a statement from the Scriptures, from what we call the Old Testament Scriptures, from the Torah. He then gives uh, an explanation of the true intent of that, and then some practical applications of it. And so we, that's what we have here today. So look down at verse 27. He First, he gives the well-known commandment. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. In what we call the Ten Commandments, this is the seventh commandment. Then Jesus' explanation of the truer, deeper intent we see in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In a few moments, we'll look at practical applications of that. Now, the view of the Jewish religious leaders of the day, as long as a person avoided actually having uh, sex with someone who wasn't their wife, then who was also married, then they were avoiding adultery. So the religious leaders were seeking to follow uh, this command, but really in the lowest possible way, trying to justify as much as they could. So they narrowed it down to really almost this one particular act. Of course, that's not actually what the seventh commandment says, but they were minimizing and rationalizing choices that they were making. And so that there would be no mistaking what God intends, Jesus here pushes deeper and wider. And Jesus goes to lustful thought, 
lustful intent, the engagement of our imagination in a sinful way. Jesus also then brings in the sense of the 10th commandment. We see in the 10th commandment that we're prohibited from coveting our neighbor's wife. So here, even the 10th commandment gets to the heart. So Jesus brings this together. Now Jesus is making clear that, that yes, of, of course, what we do with our body matters. Absolutely. But so does what we do with our eyes. So does what we do in our minds that no one else sees. Now, as last week, we, we said that Jesus was not flattening out and saying anger and, and actual literal murder are the same. Neither is he here saying that lust and adultery are identical. Obviously, the ramifications, particularly for others, are different. If a person commits uh, sexual intercourse, commits adultery, it, it's devastating. So he's not saying they're identical, but here he's urging us to see how weighty and sinful lust is. And what Jesus is prohibiting is a look motivated by lust where we're desiring another. A look that leads to lust. Now, lust in its simplest terms means to desire what doesn't belong to you. And as Jesus uses it here, lust is encouraging or, or cultivating sexual thoughts about someone who you're not, you're not married to. Unless it's your spouse, this is someone who you are not committed to. And Jesus is concerned here with our intent, with our heart, with our motivation. So this is not one person simply noticing another. But it is looking at or thinking about another person with a lustful intent. So as we think about this, we want to be mindful that not everything is lust. Particularly, some of you perhaps have a very tender conscience, and you want to follow Jesus. And so it might be tempting for you to, to begin to think that so many or, or most of your looks are lustful, and so you're weighed down by guilt and shame. So I just want to say to you, not everything is lustful. But the greater danger for most of us is not that. The greater danger for most of us is the other, where we explain away, rationalize, and justify, so there's almost nothing in our life that's lustful. We set the bar of lust so high that you could never do it. That's the danger for, for most Christians, most of us in the room today. Now, connected to this reality is that, that God has created us with powerful imaginations, that are a gift from God, that, that can be used for so much good in our world. We think about what people, humans, have created and built. Because in their imagination, they, they thought about this, they, they prepared for this, and they, they pulled it off. But this powerful imagination can also be used for sin. And so we take images, ideas, and the intent of our heart is to use them for lustful purposes. Now these words from Jesus are for all of his followers, for men and for women. But we might wonder, but, but why does this matter? If lust is only in my own thoughts, if no one else is harmed by my glances, my looks, or by my imagination, I'm not actually touching a person, why 
Does it matter? Well, friends, there are several reasons that it matters. First, every person in the world is an image bearer and is valuable to God. So when you objectify an image bearer and looks at them or thoughts about them, you are, are not treating them as the valuable creation that they are. And we're all called to love our neighbor. You cannot lust after your neighbor and love him or her at the same time. Author Sam Albury helpfully writes about the woman in this description that Jesus gives. The woman uh, described here, here's what Albury says. She is not to be looked at lustfully. Jesus is saying here that sexuality is precious and valuable. That she has a sexual integrity to her which matters and should be honored by everyone else. He's saying that this sexual integrity is so precious that it must not be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Even if she were never to find out about it, she would have been greatly wronged by being thought about lustfully. We tend to think that someone's thought life is their business alone. That what they think about in their own head has nothing to do with anyone else. And so we might want to write Jesus off at this point for daring to regulate what we do in our minds. But before we do, we need to see why Jesus is saying this. Jesus is showing us that our sexuality is far more precious than we might have realized and that his teaching is actually a form of protection for it. Friends, we so easily think that our lust is personal and private and therefore its impact is greatly limited. But in reality, its effects are pervasive whether we realize it or not. It impacts our own thoughts. It impacts our own heart. It impacts our relationship with God. It often leads to us being marked by deep weight of guilt and shame. It it impacts our relationship with others, with men, with women, If you're married, it will certainly impact your marriage as well. So friends, it's God's grace that there is a better way for us. It's God's kindness to us that he says, don't pursue that. In a life of restraint is actually where life and health, wholeness is found. Friend, don't you want the better way of Jesus? Friends, this is all tied to the fact that God created sex. It is a good and beautiful gift that God created. I want to be very clear. Christians have a high view of sex. God created it. God has given it. But God has also given it for a certain context, which is within the covenant of marriage, between a man and a woman committed to one another. And lust is misusing that good gift of God. Now, because God created sex and because all of us, therefore, have a sexual drive, that's why this fight against lust is difficult because it is a strong drive. So we don't want to be naive and act like this isn't a a difficult fight because this drive is strong. So what we're seeking to do is to redirect, to resist, to restrain a strong desire. And the fact is, in our society today, the idea of fighting lust or resisting desire is so strange that most would think it's just ridiculous. 
And yet if our society were to see and think about where our world of no restraint has led us, it no doubt has not led to greater health, greater joy, greater freedom. And friends, for all of us, eventually, it's so easy to be ensnared by lust. We underestimate the danger of lust and we overestimate our own strength in the face of it. And if we're honest, sometimes we go looking to lust in our looks and in our thoughts. We're intentionally seeking out a person or an image or a thought, but it's also true at other times we're not looking for it and it surprises us. So it might be that you're reading, let's say, a a, a news website. That's what you're honestly there for. And to your surprise, there's an ad that just the very image itself leads to great temptation and perhaps to lust. You weren't looking for it, and still you found yourself ensnared by it. So, friend, I wonder, if you're honest, where might lust have a foothold in your life? Do you find yourself regularly overestimating your own strength, underestimating the danger of lust? Though no one else knows, what are you thinking about? Who are you thinking about? And it's in light of this that Jesus urges us to take drastic action. Look down at verse 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So here Jesus uses this dramatic, attention-grabbing figure of speech. Now he's not advocating, actually maiming ourselves because if we think about it, we could remove both of our eyes and still in our mind lust. So he's not saying that's the solution, but it's, it's this hyperbolic illustration of, of just trying to drive us to just how significant the danger is and therefore how dramatic our action will need to be. We want to be sober in the face of lust. We want to fight it, flee it, seek to crush it. The Apostle Paul says it this way, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So in the face of this strong desire, the temptation to lust, what can we do? So friend, at the outset, let me encourage you, doubt your own strength and your own resolve. We're setting ourselves up to fail If we think, oh, I'm strong enough. I don't need any protections in my life. I'm simply strong enough within. The truly wise person is always aware of his or her own potential to fall. And then take some practical steps. Think about your own life. Are there situations currently in your life that you would be wise to avoid? Maybe not forever, but for now. Think ahead about a day. Think ahead about the week. There may be some things coming up. You say, look, I could see how real temptation would come in this situation. So, for instance, you might think about in your life, are there some books that honestly are just unhelpful to you? 
Now, books don't have images in them. However, as we know, a great author can paint a, a richer picture than any physical image would be. So we don't want to be naive to think that a book can't lead to lustful thoughts. So are there some books that are unhelpful to your heart and your mind? Are there some shows that you just shouldn't watch? I mean, so often, as we all know, so many of the, the shows, the movies that are so popular include sexually explicit material. And we often think nothing of it and, and think it doesn't impact us. We often even justify it. We say, well, well, I mean, it's such an artistically beautiful movie. It's okay for me to see this or that. We, we often fear being out of step with our culture. Like, I mean, who in the city hasn't seen this or that? So if I don't see it, I'll be thought of as really odd. Let me encourage you just to be wise. Your life will be fine if you don't see the latest movie or the popular show. If you're married, I think you also want to be attentive to your spouse. Because maybe you, th you have thought about it and you actually can watch this and it doesn't lead to temptation for you. That may be so. But that might not be true about your spouse. So a way of loving your spouse might be to say, I could maybe watch this, but if she thinks it would be unhelpful or he thinks it would be unhelpful, I'm going to choose not to. Because I want to serve my spouse in that way. And friend, of course, there are so many things online. As I mentioned earlier, there, there might be sites you go to to read about business or, or news that in and of themselves are fine. But as we know, there's often so many ads or links connected to them. And then on social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I've got a TikTok channel if you want to tune in. This, no, I'm you in. <laughs> but in all the social media, right, it's filled with images. Some of people we don't know and some of people we do. And the temptation is great to lust. Maybe someone that you don't know. Often, someone that you do. It might be someone from your past. It might be a friend, a co-worker. I think it's worth thinking about. In the past week, as you were looking at social media, was there a person that you anticipated seeing his or her post? Not for the content, but for the image. Were you hoping she would post? Were you hoping he would post? So you could see another image of them. But it might be going to the beach. It might be going to the gym. It might be a situation with a coworker that you're just finding a temptation within. And of course, there's the great danger of pornography that's so incredibly accessible, prevalent in its use, and so deeply destructive. And for if you today are ensnared in pornography, one, I just want to urge you, pornography kills. It's so destructive. It's so dangerous. But there's also hope. There is a way out to freedom, though that may seem so far away. So maybe you've tried to fight in the past and you failed, or maybe you've never even tried. Let me urge you, friend, to see the seriousness of it the implications of it in every relationship in your life, your own heart, your own mind, but to, to fight and to flee, take drastic steps 
And we would be glad to help you in that. We would love to serve you and pray for you. It's, it's a common struggle, so you're not alone, but it is serious. So friend, in your own life, where would you be wise to make some changes? Where, if you're honest, do you need some safeguards? And friends, we have to be mindful of this. I'm responsible for my own looks and my own thoughts. You are responsible for your own looks and your own thoughts. We're not passive in this. Lust does not happen to us. We have the ability to make choices in this. So therefore, friend, choose to starve your eyes and your minds of that which is sinful. And instead, choose to feed your mind with what is good and true and right. Embrace, think deeply on the fact that your king has come. He's made a way to live differently in the world. A life that has restraints, that is true, but the life that is truly worth living. Cultivate, feed in your mind a trust that his way is best, even when, especially when, it's costly. And friends, we should see Jesus gives a daunting warning that ongoing unrepentant sin, ongoing unrepentant embracing of lust calls into question if I truly know Christ. It calls into question if I've really experienced salvation. Friends, God has a greater vision for us to live within instead of embracing and walking in lust. The vision is for all of us together, those who are unmarried, those who are married, to live out this countercultural view of sex. So therefore, friends, as Christians, we must be against all forms of sexual abuse to speak up for those who have been abused. And therefore, as Christians, we, we must strongly oppose all forms of human trafficking we want to work together to end this horrific evil. And we should all be against pornography wherever we can through, through laws and other means to undermine this that destroys countless lives and marriages every year. And we see a, a deeper pursuit. But then second, we see a higher view. A higher view in verse 31 and 32. Look down at verse 31. The pattern repeats here. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now here, Jesus is alluding to Deuteronomy 24. Now divorce was not a part of God's good design for marriage. We see in Deuteronomy 24 that Moses begins to permit divorce because of the hardness of God's people's hearts. They were so trapped in sin, embracing sin and mistreating others, particularly men towards women, that this allowance was made to try to at least rein in these destructive practices. A friend, I recognize that divorce is a terribly painful topic. I would guess every single one of us in this room have been touched by divorce in a very close way perhaps in your immediate family, if not immediate, very close to us. And we look at this topic today not to add hurt to those who've already been wounded, not to heap condemnation, not to crush, but so that we might think biblically on a very common and relevant issue. There's no way that we could tackle all the related questions today. 
So you may live here with a, with a number of questions or maybe even leave with objections to something I've said. I would love to schedule time to talk with you more about this. So please note that on the connection card or feel free to chat with me on your way out or send me an email this week. Now here, Jesus only speaks briefly to it. We'll, we'll return to this in Matthew 19. Jesus will talk about divorce again. But here in our passage, we see how high Jesus holds the covenant of marriage and how serious he, he views a divorce as. He says the divorce, in this case, makes the woman commit adultery. So this man in the, in the image here is uh, divorcing his wife. But then we ask the question, well, how does divorce make her an adulterer? Is The assumption is in that world, if a woman was divorced economically, she would almost have to remarry to be able to make it economically. So if a husband unjustly divorces her, he's already committed adultery by the divorce. But then he's forcing her to then go remarry. And because she didn't have a justifiable divorce, he's, he's pushing her into adultery as well. The weight of what Jesus is saying is that marriage matters greatly to God. And there are multiple reasons that marriage matters to God and should matter to us as well. And the first is this. Marriage is a covenant relationship designed by God. We see this in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Adam and Eve are brought together and we see, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the picture of marriage. A man and a woman leaving family, cleaving to one another, being joined in this most physical and spiritual one flesh. This is God's intention. One man, one woman in the covenant for life. And this covenant relationship is intended to tell a bigger story to reflect the faithfulness of God to his covenant people. So marital love in the covenant of marriage is to be a reflection of the always faithful love of God. To point to the faithfulness of this God. So God intends a, a sacredness and a permanence for marriage. Marriage also matters because it's intended to point to the bigger story of Christ and his relationship with the church. We see this in Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32. Paul quotes from Genesis 2 and then expands upon it. Here's what he says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says this, Ephesians 5, 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the mystery is that marriage is intended to be a picture, or you might say a symbol, a parable portraying the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church. Christ who gave himself freely on the cross for the church that would be his bride. So marriage is a smaller version to reflect this beautiful picture. And Christ has an unbreakable commitment to his church. He would never leave, never forsake his church. So for a husband to, divide, to divorce his wife would be telling something that's not true. Jesus will never, ever forsake the church. Marriage also matters to Jesus because there are image bearers involved in marriage. And divorce is devastatingly painful. It makes sense if, if the covenant is two becoming one, in divorce, the, the one must be torn in two. 
So it's tremendously painful to those being divorced. And, and if there are children, many of you were children of divorce, you know well the pain of kids who face divorce. Now, are there exceptions where divorce is allowable in God's Word? Yes. As I mentioned, this is not seeking to be an exhaustive sermon. But so here in our text, we see one allowance. That is, if the spouse commits adultery. We see this also in Matthew chapter 19. That it is allowable, if one's spouse commits adultery, to get a divorce. Let's be clear, it's not required So it is possible for a spouse to stay. That would be tremendously difficult, but it can be done. But divorce is allowable in that situation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, we see a situation that Paul speaks to of a a Christian who's married to someone who's not a believer. And Paul says if, if the one who's not a believer abandons the Christian, then divorce is allowable there. It's not that the Christian divorced, but the one who's not a Christian said, I, I don't want to be married to you anymore, so they've abandoned the covenant. Divorce is allowable there. And this principle of abandonment is also applied to cases of abuse, where the abuser is functionally abandoning their God-given role in the covenant. And friend, if you are in an abusive relationship, friend, we, we do not want you to go it alone. We would love to serve you, to intervene for you and with you. So please don't suffer alone. Now for many of us, we're tempted to dwell upon the exceptions. Even as I started talking about divorce, you're immediately thinking through, what about this exception and what about that? And they are there and they're worthy of our exploration. But most, the vast majority of divorces in our society and among Christians don't involve those exceptions. Much more often it is in marriage that that a couple finds marriage to be very difficult. In time, they say, "I'm, I'm not happy in marriage, so I should leave. Or they say, you know, we've just grown apart over the years. Or they found someone else. They think this person will truly fulfill them, and so they are divorced. And friend, if you've experienced divorce, and perhaps it wasn't your choice, you were even against it. Perhaps your spouse was unfaithful to you. Your spouse abandoned you. We're so sorry that you have faced that. And we want you to know the comfort and grace of God. And there is no guilt for you. There is no shame for you. We want you to know that you are loved and welcomed here. And maybe for someone in your past, you divorced your spouse. And if you're honest today, it was your fault and there wasn't a justifiable reason. But the good news is there is forgiveness for us in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is healing and hope. We want you to know that you are welcome here. Now, in light of the seriousness of marriage and divorce, there are some things that we'd want to consider. So, so a few words first to those of us who are married. Friend, let me, at the outset, let me say this. Marriage 
is typically hard. That there is like 1% of marriages that honestly across the decades, it's just not hard. And if that's your experience, count that a great blessing. Give thanks to God. Don't feel bad about it. Don't feel guilty about it. Don't think there's something wrong with you. It's a wonderful gift if that's your experience. But for most of us, the vast majority of us, marriage is difficult. And if we think about it logically, it makes sense. Because in marriage, it's one, it's simply two people trying to share everything in life. It's a man and a woman trying to share everything in life. It's a man and woman from two different families trying to share everything in life, trying to share money, all these things. So it's, it's surprising. In fact, it's shocking when marriage isn't hard because of those dynamics. Sometimes people are crushed when they enter into marriage and they discover that it's hard because they thought going in it wouldn't be. And sometimes you have the idea that, that the, the wedding, as we prepare for marriage, there's some difficulty in that, but then the wedding day is the summit of the mountain. And then going forward, marriage should be ease. It should be bliss. But instead, friends, marriage is not the summit of the mountain. Marriage is actually, the wedding is the, the bottom of the mountain. Where together you commit together and say, we're committing for life to climb this mountain. It's going to be hard at points. We're going to want to give up at points. There will be some easier paths and some harder ones, but we're going to climb and keep climbing, and we'll, we'll make some progress, but we'll never reach the summit in this life. But it's a worthwhile climb, even though it's hard. And friends, because it's hard, we'll need to work on it. Just like anything else in life that's valuable and hard takes some work. So friend, it might be reading a book on marriage perhaps together. Maybe your spouse isn't open to that. That's okay. Just read it yourself. Let me encourage you also to resist the temptation to compare your marriage to other couples. Because when you're in a difficult season, it can easily appear that no one else has any struggles. You're the only one hurting. So even when you come to church on Sunday morning, you walk in and you're struggling. Maybe you barely made it here today. Last night was really hard in your marriage. These last weeks or months have been really hard. And so you just staggered in this morning, and it's easy to look around and say, happy couple, happy couple, everyone has it all together. Or if you go on social media, and every married couple on social media seems to be the happiest in the world. Like, oh, it's just us having some fine wine on our anniversary of our anniversary of our, we have an anniversary for every date we've ever had. And so they're, they're always happy and it's always just bliss for them. And so we compare ourselves to that and we feel like we're the only ones. But you're not the only ones. At any given time, numerous couples in this church who are struggling. So don't compare yourself and don't be crushed thinking you're the only one. Let me also encourage you, friend, there's wisdom in asking for help. There's a, a biblical counseling center here in the city that we as a church support, and that we'd be glad to pay for you to see. And I would just encourage you, go sooner, not later. Often we wait a long time, still can be helpful, but there's just much more work we have to do. So better to go sooner than later. So, so if we can help you in that, the church has set aside money. We want to help you in that. In the midst of this, friend, is if you're married, guard yourself from temptation of lust and adultery. Don't ever think you could never do that. You could. 
We all could. So be careful. Be attentive of situations you put yourself in. Friend, if you're a Christian and you're married to someone who's not a Christian, what should you do? Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. And if possible, Paul says, stay in the marriage. Stay the course. Seek to glorify God. Pray for your spouse. Love your spouse. Let your church serve you as well so that hopefully one day, Lord willing, your spouse will come to know Christ. And friends, for all of us who are married, persevere. Persevere in marriage, especially in the hard seasons. Our current culture will not help us in this. Most of your friends and coworkers, if they're not Christians, they, they will not support you in persevering. They'll say, look, you tried. No, you deserve to be happy. No, you guys just, you just don't work together. And friends, there's certainly more to marriage than endurance. But our seasons of unhappiness are not an accurate indicator of the longer vision of our marriage. Our hearts are deceptive. Our sin can, can blind us. And so it's easy for us to give up. So friend, let me encourage you. See the beauty of faithful endurance and perseverance. Persevering with all the strength that you have, knowing that the strength that you have is from God. God loves marriage. God cares about your marriage. So he will give you strength by the Spirit to persevere in marriage. Marriage is more than persevering. Friends, it's not less than that. Author Glenn Harrison says it this way. A couple celebrating their wedding anniversary actually offers a stronger picture of God's love than a couple getting married. The essence of faithfulness is that it holds steady in the face of alternatives. Faithfulness is nurtured, tested, and in the end, strengthened by temptations. The wife and husband who remain faithful to each other for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, not only bear testimony to the kind of love that God has for us, but they put it on display. It's very regularly here at Hope we have celebrate weddings, and it is a beautiful day to celebrate a wedding. But a few weeks ago, we had something that, that actually we've never done before in Life at Church, and that was uh, a couple of members, uh, Danny and Crystal Lyons, renewed their wedding vows at 25 years. And it was really a rich time together. 25 years later, Crystal looks the same. Danny, not so much, right? So, so. But as they stood here that day, right, they, they were not as blissful as they were on their wedding day. They've been through some valleys like every married couple. They've hurt each other and forgiven each other. They faced challenges, but they stood there a picture of faithfulness. And actually a more profound picture than on their wedding day. Friends, that's what God desires for us. When we persevere to year five, to year ten, to year 25, Lord willing, to year 50, to year 60. Friend, when you do that, with the grace and strength that God gives you, you tell a better story. And then to, to those of us in, in the congregation who are, who are single, and, and especially if you desire to be married, a few thoughts. One, seek to be growing yourself as a maturing follower of Christ. And look for someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. 
and someone who will encourage you to love Jesus more than you love them. Look for someone who you could say, hey, we're standing at the bottom of this mountain. Let's commit to each other till death do us part. And let's climb this mountain. There's going to be some hard days. There will be some pain. But I want to climb this mountain with you. Now, a related question that sometimes comes, well, well, should a Christian date or marry someone who's not a Christian? And the, the picture of Scripture is that a Christian shouldn't marry someone who's not a Christian. We're to be in a covenant relationship, becoming one flesh, and that is to be with someone who also knows Christ. And we want to be clear here. We say to marry a Christian not because we think Christians are better. Sometimes that's what people hear. Christians think they're better than non-Christians, and so that's why they say only marry a Christian. No, it's because Christians understand we're not better. It's because we understand how profoundly sinful we can be. That's why I need to marry someone who also knows the grace of God. Someone who also has the Spirit within them. Because marriage is hard, because I am a sinner, because I know I'm not good. Following Jesus in this life is hard, and it is harder if your spouse is not on the same path. Now, marrying a Christian does not guarantee that your marriage will be happier or easier, but it does promise the presence of the Spirit in both of you as you seek to make progress together. Now, as I said before, if you're already married to someone who's not a Christian, stay the course by God's grace. But if you're not yet married, friend, let me urge you, Marry someone who knows Christ in a real and substantial way. I could tell you across the years of ministry, the painful experiences of so many who are married to someone they deeply love, but their spouse doesn't know Christ. And it's led to great pain, often loneliness and isolation, because this thing that is so important to them, Jesus isn't shared with their spouse. And so because we say marry a Christian, you will likely, in our culture at least, marry someone who you date. So we'd say it, it's wise to date someone who knows Christ. Because what happens so often is that, that I can't tell you how many times someone has said to me, I would never marry someone who's not a Christian. I'm dating this person who's not a Christian, but I would never marry him unless he becomes a Christian. And I think they honestly meant that on this day. But a year and a half later, they say, we're going to get married. Oh, is, is, is he now a Christian? No. But they just cannot imagine not getting married. Our hearts get intertwined so deeply and so easily. So that's why, friends, we say don't date them because you just won't be able to stop the momentum of it. Friend, if you are going to date, let me just encourage you, seek godly counsel. Have some people in your life who know you and know Jesus and give them access to ask you some hard questions and to give feedback. And if they say of you when they see you with this other person, they say, actually, we love you even more when we see you with this person. He brings out the best in you. She brings out the best in you. That's a good sign. But if those who know you and love you and that you trust, they say, actually, when you're with this person, you, you don't seem like yourself. Every time you talk about him or her, you're unhappy instead of happy. So I'm just, as a loving friend, giving input. 
You need some people who will tell you those things. And because we often have a strong desire for, for marriage, and because we'll often rationalize and justify the choices we make, we need people who'd be willing to call us away. If you've decided right now, I don't want to marry someone who's not a Christian, you need some people who will speak truth if you head down that road. My friend, if you do date, date towards marriage. Don't date only to date. Date with a purpose. I mean, if you're an adult, like if you're, I mean, 14, then don't date toward marriage yet. But if you're really beyond about 18, you should be dating towards marriage. And as soon as you figure out this is a person I, I can't marry, you shouldn't discontinue dating. You don't help either one of you to keep going. So date intentionally towards marriage. Now, friend, let me clear also, if, if you're currently not married and you don't have a desire for marriage, please don't hear me saying that you need to pursue marriage because you don't. The New Testament holds out a very rich picture of singleness. So you don't need to pursue marriage. You don't have to be married in order to live a full life. Jesus was not married. So, friend, that, don't mishear what I'm saying. Glorify God where you are. And if that's in singleness, then let us as a church love you and serve you in that. Now, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is a shocking Sunday to come to church. <laughs> so there's probably numerous things that I've said today that you might think, wow, those Christians think they're better than everyone else. Maybe you think, wow, these Christians, they really restrain things so much when it comes to sexuality. But friend, now, most of all, we want you to see that we think marriage matters because it tells a story of a gracious Savior, Jesus the King, who came and lived on this earth, who never lusted, never objectified another, lived a perfect, sinless life, and went to the cross in the place of sinners to pay for our sin, to pay for our lust, to, pray, to pay for our, even our adultery. He died in our place, was buried and raised on the third day to secure this free gift of salvation, free gift of grace and mercy to any and all who'd receive it by faith. So all that I've said about marriage and lust flows from this. We'd love to tell you more if you're interested in exploring that. As we think about the restraints that Jesus gives to his followers, if we're Christians, we'll face the choice, will we truly trust Jesus in these areas? Will we believe that Jesus really does know the way to true flourishing even if he restrains things, even if he pro prohibits certain things from us? Will we believe his way is best? Will we as a church love and encourage and serve and spur one another on? Will we have hard conversations when needed with one another? It's tempting for some people to think, well, I care about my friend and so... You know, he really loves this person. She's not a Christian. But I, I, I mean, Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is caring. I want to be loving and compassionate, so I'm not going to say anything. Basically saying that we're more loving and compassionate than Jesus. Friend, be careful of thinking that. Jesus' compassion and care does offer restraints. Calls us to be careful and wise. For we need people in our life who will be compassionate and caring enough that if we were to pursue divorce in an unjustified way, they would pursue us and urge us not to. 
We need some other Christians in our life. If, if you're dating someone who's not a Christian, heading down that road, you need some people who love you, who are compassionate enough to call you away from that, not just let you keep going down that path. And friends, in a broken society that misuses sex, that doesn't see the value of marriage, we have the chance together to be salt and light, to show forth light in the darkness of all sorts of misuse of sexuality, to show and point to a better way, the the way of true freedom instead of enslavement, a way of grace, the way of respecting others, not objectifying others, the way of faithful, enduring, committed, covenant love. Friends, together we can hold that out, that light to a city, a culture that desperately needs it. Glenn Harrison says it this way, It's time to recover our confidence that the Christian vision for sex, marriage, and family also conveys social and relational goods that can bring blessing and flourishing to all. We need to be ready to share what we ourselves have found to be true for the sake of children in need. Because a culture of strong marriages brings stability to their emotional and psychological development alleviates poverty, and enhances educational outcomes, and to do so for the sake of the poor more generally too, because it is they who bear the brunt of the collapse of marriage. We do it for the sake of women, because the Christian vision of men who love their wives as Christ loves the church condemns outright abuses of psychological control and aggression. And for the sake of young men, because in the Christian vision for their days of being Peter Pan are numbered, And we need to share what we have found for the sake of all whose lives have been hollowed out by pornography and promiscuity, trafficking, and by the fruitless pursuit of self-fulfillment. We've been given life for the world, and we cannot, we must not keep it for ourselves. Friends, we have good news for the world. As a means of response today, several ways of responding. One is the connection card. And friends, there are Many ways that perhaps you could use prayer, and I'd love for you to note that on the card. Uh, There's a confidential thing you could mark there. Only I will see it. I would love to pray for you. You might have questions. You might have ways that you disagree. You might have uh, things you would want to talk more about. You can note that as well. Just a moment, receive the offering. You can drop the card in the basket. We also have some resources on the book table. I just want to tell you about briefly um, two uh, books that are identical, but one for men, one for women. Sexual Sanity for Women, Sexual Sanity for Men. Helpful, clear, biblical workbooks. One related to porn, the death of porn. These are up there. They're $10. If you have cash, put it in the box. If you don't, just take the book. We'd rather you have the book than worry about the cash. Please take the book. Let's bow our heads now for a time of silence. Then I'll lead us in praying. Then we'll sing in response. Father, we need your grace. We need your help. We live in a society where there's little restraint. Freedom is everything. And yet our world is devastated in how we handle sexuality and marriage. So, Father, we pray you'd help us today to believe that your way is better. I pray that no one in the room would leave overwhelmed by condemnation, but they would leave with a desire to to fight lust, to flee it, to start again, to engage in the battle against pornography. 
pray for marriages that are struggling. I pray today you give them a glimmer of hope. Refresh their ability to persevere. I pray for those who have experienced the pain of divorce, for that they would not feel condemned today, but comforted and encouraged by your grace. Father, help us as a church to be salt and light in this area, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.